0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda,
1: And I am Sile.
2: My name is Chris Impey. I'm a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. I've worked here for about 35 years. I was born in Scotland and grew up in the UK and America, 10 different schools bouncing around. Got interested in physics as an undergraduate and did that, and then got pulled into the outward-looking astronomy game for a PhD. And so I'm in Arizona because we have incredible clear skies, large telescopes. It's about the, the best place to do astronomy. And if it's not the best place, then the places like Chile and so on, where the skies are even better, we have telescopes there. So I go there to observe.
0: So um, Australia cool, would so. by far be the worst place to do any form of astronomy then? Not terrible.
2: I When I was a graduate student in Edinburgh, I went to the Anglo-Australian Observatory in siding Spring and I got data there and my thesis has... AAT data and it's not a terrible site it's pretty dark it's not very high though so these days you want to be above all the weather and the atmosphere yeah Um, that's
0: that's usually what we have an issue with weather so (laughs)
2: Australia is famous for radio astronomy and they were pioneers on that back to the 1940s and 50s so that's for radio astronomy the climate doesn't matter so
1: what's radio astronomy is it like the podcast of astronomy
2: yeah well it could be But it's more the radio universe, what's going on at long wavelengths out there in space, which answers quite a lot. So it's a big subject.
1: So I just wanted to let you know that Huda and I are both, you know, we want to break things down for the audiences because I feel like astronomy is one of those branches that it needs to be more accessible to the common person. And we want to do that more and more so people can stop coming up with conspiracy theories or ideas that they might think are true, even though they're not. And I wanted to start with the first one, which was the report that came out, out of the Pentagon. And I know you've commented on it, and I personally read it, and it's a piece of shit. (laughs) It's a massive bunch of bullshit that just, I felt like I learned less after reading that.
0: But also, do you think it's because you had high hopes or uh, of high I expectations high and it just didn't meet them?
1: Yeah, it <laughs> definitely didn't meet them. Well, what did you think about it, Chris? And be really well, I honest.
2: Was, I wasn't as disappointed because I didn't have very high hopes. Oh, they, okay. Is that part of being a scientist? No, it's part of knowing the history of the US military and UFOs it goes back to Roswell 1940s and they've been secretive and not very forthcoming about everything and they've not really shone much light on the phenomenon so that nothing really changed. That report, all nine pages, that cost $22 million so American taxpayers should be pretty annoyed too.
0: Yeah.
1: And they've never mentioned it and and is, is that statistic something that it has been published? Oh yeah, I, yeah, Congress asked for the report
2: and they got it and now they just have learned almost nothing. So their military were told to go back and come back again in a few months with more data, better information or say how you're going to do better and that's that's pretty much it. I agree. Didn't learn much
1: at all. So is it part of being a superpower that the U.S. has always been so secretive about it? Why the secrecy? Like if we were to find that there is life outside, why is there so much fear around what might happen? Is it the unknown that people are so scared about or the government so scared about?
2: Well, the military is secretive by instinct and by it's a reflex, of course, because they don't generally think public can handle certain things. And they have genuine security concerns, too. So with this report, for example, one of the things they forget about aliens and E.T., they also were very cagey about whether these were possibly technologies of a, advert- a military adversary of the United States. You know, and that is why the report came from the Director of National Intelligence, because that's their main concern. They didn't say much about that either, but that's an example of why they are secretive historically. And then they're secretive just because They know that UFO phenomena has been cloaked in conspiracy theories and it's in the pop culture in a kind of unfortunate way with crop circles and alien abductions and so on. And they're probably pretty squeamish about that. In fact, the report also talked about how they had to get over the reticence that their pilots have in even reporting these sightings because they would be embarrassed think they would think it's unprofessional to even talk about this. So it's right the way through the military from the pilots themselves all the way up to the top. And yeah, they're probably some level at which they don't trust the public with sensitive or awkward information.
1: So why why come out with the report now? What was the need for the report?
2: They were told to do it. They were ordered by Congress to do it. So, you know, going back decades, Harry Reid, who used to be the Democratic Senate leader, he'd been interested. His district, of course, includes Area 51 in Nevada. So he'd been interested personally and had, you know, rattled the cage of the military to say more about their secret programs. He's out of power now. And Rubio was the senator from Florida who pretty much led the committee that asked for this report. So they were told to do it and they had to respond to Congress.
0: So I'm a bit of a noob when it comes to this. And you mentioned crop circles. So how does that even work? Like, I mean, what are they really for someone and, who doesn't know and how do they happen? <laughs>
1: and what were the first interpretations of crop circles that kind of came out? Like, why did people perceive it as it could be a UAV or UFO?
2: Right. Well, you you can go back to the origin story, which I know, and it's been lost in time. Time back in the 1970s. But Please tell us. What, what people have forgotten that story the corrupt circles which started to appear in England and then were seen in Canada, Australia, various places, We wheat being pressed down. I mean, to me, it's just it's simply ludicrous that aliens would travel hundreds of trillions of miles across the galaxy with far superior technology just to press down our wheat <laughs> and, then, and then go back home. I mean, it's wheat.
1: Have you so, heard a tortilla? <laughs> You know how great a tortilla is? but If you forgot the origin, then
2: people will now comment about it. There'll be very Byzantine, super complex things where someone will write an article about how this crop circle, which is very complicated, demonstrated a mathematical theorem that has never been seen in mathematics. So it's new mathematics. So it must've come from aliens and et cetera, et cetera. So you'll you'll see this whole edifice of ridiculousness about it. The origin story, which I remember because I was in Britain as a student when it happened, is that the first crop circles were seen in the South of England. And eventually, you know, it got into the press and everyone had a big laugh and nobody really took it seriously. And then, you know, the fringe press sort of said, oh, it could be aliens and so on. And then the two guys, two blokes, who did it, who just got drunk one night and took boards and planks out into a field and made the crop circles, they fessed up and everyone had a good laugh. And at that point, you might have thought, oh, it'll just go away. But no, then the copycat (laughs) circles start appearing and they get more complicated and more, and, and people who don't know the, don't remember that story if they weren't there and didn't read about it at the time, forgot that. And so now it's its own thing. And that's classic pseudoscience. Alien abduction is another example because that's Pretty serious. I mean, you've got to be very careful before you question someone's personal experience that they claim. But there's whole literature now on the psychology and the sociology and the psychopathy, if you like, of alien abduction reports and so on. And then there's some set of people who just take them at face value. Well, yeah, sure. Aliens have been abducting people. They've been doing that for decades. Why would we be surprised? They've been visiting us for decades. They've been abducting people for decades and doing experiments on them. They've been pressing down wheat. They've been doing all sorts of things. It's just part of the whole, you know, superstructure, infrastructure of alien visiting the earth. So most scientists don't want to touch it with a ten foot pole.
0: So you guys are a buzzkill then really? <laughs> no, we like
2: lots of other cool stuff. Dark energy, dark matter, black holes. We Ooh, like we are, okay. we, we, are many, get, we are we are gonna get we are many cool things. It. They just happen to be really cool things that are within the realm of the laws of physics.
0: Oh, okay. All right Chris. But also I,
1: I think it's important, Chris, that we have guests like you because I don't remember the origin story because it hasn't been published as much in the media. Like, I don't even know it was two drunk blokes, which is so common in the UK.
0: How do people even do that? How do... It's not actually that hard. I mean, it, you, really? it, it's not it a
2: basic point is you can just have a little plan and, you know, boards of various sizes and a rope and you a central tether so you can get the symmetry. I mean, I'll just take a different example, which ends up in the same bucket. The Nazca lines, these famous lines in Mexico, you know, which cover the the desert in the southern part of Mexico. All these geometric shapes covering hundreds of meters, kilometers actually. And they've, you know, classically been swept into the UFO and alien world because how could, how could we possibly have done this? You can't even see these shapes. They were done supposedly hundreds of years ago during the sort of Aztec time but we didn't have planes then so they couldn't have possibly known what they would look like from the air and they couldn't have possibly done them because they were too primitive and not smart enough. And so they become part of the UFO Open, sort of both sort of like crop circles. And that's just a combination of ignorance and arrogance. It's the ignorance of not trying to think of a reasonable explanation. And the arrogance, which I object to more, is that these people were too stupid to have done this. You know, the pyramids, you can't fit a knife between those rocks, you know. <sighs> they were so accurately machined and those people, that was 4,000 years ago, they couldn't have done that. The aliens must have helped them make the pyramids.
0: I didn't even know and that you, that was you know, a thing. And there's this
2: whole world of the aliens must have done x y or z in the past because all these things are out there and we can't explain them and those people were too primitive to have done them give me a break
1: well chris i have a a good answer so we've got the taj mahal in india right if you look at the taj mahal and you look at the engravings and the specificity of engravings you go how the hell did they make something like this Unless you know that there were only 30,000 people working on it for 30 years. If you can't make that in 30 years with 30,000 people, then you've not got a great labor force, do you? It's not like we suddenly became so intelligent in the last 4,000 years that suddenly we're like, oh, now we're this very smart species. And you're right, it's the arrogance. Mm. It's the arrogance of thinking that, those people that our ancestors weren't smart enough and we are the so-called conscious beings that somehow know that there must have been something else involved in this.
0: I can't believe so that, they did that about the pyramids, though. Like, I feel like that's a bit of a, that's a bit far. Let the Egyptians have that one.
2: Well, there's a there's a good archaeological example. It comes into the news every now and then. It's got nothing to do with aliens and I don't think people have even claimed it, but it's a perfect example of how we can denigrate our forebears. The curse of modernity is to think we are the first generation or first era that really knows cool shit. That's just not true. Okay, (laughs) science, we know a lot more about the universe in the last hundred years, but our brains have not changed substantially for about 40 or 50,000 years. Those are the last known changes to the brain that enhanced our speech centers. And we're fully modern humans by 40,000 years ago. So the only difference is we settled down, we Didn't have to worry about dying so much as hunter-gatherers, and we developed civilization and technology, blah, blah, blah. But there's no difference. And that was called the Antikythera mechanism, Greek word. And it was a, a truly amazing accidental find. In the Aegean Sea, about 110 years ago, they found some rusted, corroded, pitted, and compressed, you know, out of all recognition... Device artifact about the size of your hand from a shipwreck. The shipwreck was 2,000 years ago. It was a Greek ship, a sort of late Greek era ship that was going across the Mediterranean. And to cut the story short, after decades of work, it was so hard because it was so messed up and it used all sorts of advanced imaging techniques and so on to decode it. They figured out that this was an analog computer and it was designed to tell time, to show the positions of all the planets, to predict eclipse cycles on time scales of hundreds of years. Some of the gears are elliptical gears that they knew how to make 2,000 years ago mechanically. And more significant for an astronomer, the gears that show the positions of the major planets incorporate their elliptical motions. That's why they use elliptical gears. So they realize that Jupiter and Saturn, very subtle motions in the sky, are non-uniform motions because they have elliptical orbits. Now in the history books that was only found by Kepler 400 years yeah, ago the, yeah. the Greeks were not supposed to know about that let alone make an incredible device to actually capture those motions so this discovery has rewritten the book of history of technology it's rewritten the book of history of astronomy my subject it's incredible and it was found by accident so you know you've got to be a little humble when you think you know what happened and how we got to where we are and that we're the first people to know stuff That's that is true we have
0: this yeah you Human beings have this level of sort of like superiority almost to say that we are just this sort of incredible and only species on the planet that just, you know, figured it out all on our own type of thing.
2: Well, another piece of it that's not, it, it's a little more forgivable, it's not necessarily our amnesia or arrogance, is, you know, we only live in the moment of the internet. So, you know, go back to the crop circles. That origin story was before the internet right 1970s there's a lot of stuff we just don't know or have recorded it might be in a book somewhere or a magazine in a library or in a newspaper in an archive but to most people now if it's not on the internet it didn't happen and it doesn't
0: (laughs) exist that is
2: hard that's where some of the amnesia comes from everything starts in the early 1990s pretty much before that there was no
1: information available yeah people had to like physically (laughs) go around and look for it
2: you know in the old days when all you had were say books it was a pain in the when they asked to write a book it took a long time it was yeah. difficult it cost money you had editors you had fact checkers and you didn't do it lightly so books mm. sort of meant something um novels yep. of course that were there for entertainment but just factual books manuals about things encyclopedias and so on well now it's all in wikipedia and it's all on the internet and now we don't even have to think about it or question its provenance or its accuracy And we know the internet is riddled with misinformation and falsehoods and the conspiracy theories. so navigating that is a lot harder than navigating information used to be.
0: We have to appreciate how difficult it used to be to kind of sit there and do this sort of research and actually put it all in a book. Nowadays every Tom, Dick and Harry is writing a bloody book, you know, and I'm not even talking about just people that are credible like I'm talking about people that aren't credible like the amount of people that are writing their own biographies and it's so they're not Red. that interesting.
2: <laughs> well, that's another thing we can thank Amazon for. They created CreateSpace and these modes of self-publishing, which are actually pretty easy to use, and you get a pretty professional-looking product. Whether what's in it is worth reading is another matter entirely. So
1: I'm glad that you pointed out Amazon, because yeah. it's been really bothering me for the last couple of days how much I've paid for Jeff Bezos to go up there. Well, that doesn't actually buy so much from Amazon at all.
0: I never buy anything from Amazon. And it,
1: it <laughs> boggled my mind, because when I was in America, I was only ordering from Amazon. It's like two days, it's here, right? And you're like, this is amazing.
2: Americans want it both ways. They want it now, same day delivery, forget about next day delivery. And they don't really want to think about the implications. I mean, luckily, there are investigative journalists and books have been written. And so the Amazon footprint on the world, its effect on wages, its effect on worker conditions, its effect on the planet, its carbon footprint, those things are now better known than they used to be. But still, everyone is addicted pretty much. Much to Amazon. If you got asked 200 million Americans to just cold turkey on Amazon as a collective action, no way.
1: No.
0: I can't believe that because I very rarely online
1: shop. It's really addictive. But my question was Jeff Bezos going into space, is that more of a male ego thing or is it actually going to be used to find some information that we can use in the future? Like benefit us? Yeah, that may benefit us.
2: Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a little conflicted on this because I appreciated some of the modes of exploration of space in the past. I think we have learned something. I mean, you can you can always discount the entire history of, say, the moon landings and say that was all just a geopolitical pissing contest between the US oh, and Oh, wait a minute.
1: We're going to get to that. I, I <laughs> we have so question.
2: many questions. Not, and it's true. It would never have happened without the Cold War, without other things happening. We were never gone to the moon and we haven't been back for half a century. So some of the space History is very anomalous and very strange, and a lot of it was driven by military motives. This is different. This is commercial now, and it's mixed. On the one hand, if you appreciate technology and people who do clever things with the technology, these private space companies have have changed the economics of getting something into Earth orbit dramatically. They reduced the cost per kilo into Earth orbit by a factor of 20 after it didn't go down at all with thanks to NASA for 40 years. Well, that's something. You know, I don't know if that has value, but it's it's something. It's demonstrations of technology. In terms of the billionaires, yes. I mean, it's clearly a ego trip of Branson, Musk and Vezos to be the first in orbit and to be there themselves. And it's not going to improve anything. And it was ludicrous coming out of Vezos's mouth. I mean, he just said so many ludicrous things around his flight. And like, he obviously got in hot water for thanking all the people who bought things from Amazon. for And his workers,
1: everyone who works for Amazon, that's like in your face.
2: Yeah, he said other things that just on their face are ridiculous like he he said the goal here is to get all our heavy industry offer and put it into orbit and I thinking come on like, get real are you serious what are you smoking so you know he's he's a smart guy of course and he's doing it for a reason he's got economic models behind it and they probably will make money out of tourism and from the high end and they'll bring the cost down so that wealthy people and not super rich people can do it and they will the analogy that's always being made with commercial aviation is completely flawed because yes, commercial aviation flying in the 1930s was expensive and only rich people did it and it was dangerous. And now 4 billion people flew last year on jets and so on around the world. But there's a huge difference. The 4 billion people that flew around the world on jets were getting from A to B. They were getting... To- from A to B to visit people, to do business, to see their families, to visit new places. Okay, there's a carbon footprint on that. But there was a reason it grew. That's not going to be the case in space. We're not going to go from a handful of billionaires to millions or billions of people going into space. To do what? There's no reason to be there. So, you know, there's there's some deep holes in the whole argument about space travel in this model that we're seeing played out around us.
0: I like that you said for what, because I always wonder that there was something I read some time ago and there was just something to do with, you know, in the future, we'll be able to go on a holiday, we'll go to space. And a part of me was kind of like, yeah, look, I mean, that's interesting because it's something just outside the universe, right? But I was just like, what else would you do? Like, you'd go, you'd look at it and go, yes, sweet.
1: What are you going to even look at? Like- yeah, I mean, there's not much to say. Once
2: you've experienced just what these people did for a few minutes, seeing the curve of the Earth and the slender atmosphere, and, oh, it's fragile, isn't that amazing? The, the insight that astronauts have had, all 600 of them. Fine, and then what? Why would you live off Earth? Yeah. Why do you want to go to a moon base or a Mars base? You know, space was not made for us. Humans are incredibly maladapted to the space environment. It's an utter vacuum. It's absolutely cold. It's full of radiation. We couldn't survive there for 10 seconds, you know, unassisted. So, this is not a natural place for us to be, and therefore, even for a minute, let alone to live and work on a base or a colony. So, Mm -hmm. people will do it, and they'll do it you know, because they're funded by those deep pockets. Some will be the geopolitical thing again. The new frontier of space is the space race between China and the United States. And Mm -hmm. they're buying war supremacy in that arena. You know, we all worry about nuclear weapons, again, even though the UN Treaty of 65 supposedly banned nukes in space. So there's a geopolitical part of this that'll play out. There's the private sector part. There's mining asteroids and so on, buccaneering type stuff. But it's not going to change the world. It's not going to fundamentally alter how we live or improve it. So it's a sideshow and it's an expensive sideshow. But there's a few arguments that are made that are not completely invalid. One of them is the act of learning how to live in space, especially say on the moon or Mars, is that you have to perfect technologies that allow you to be completely self-contained. You have to perfect technologies that allow you to recycle everything, to grow food from inert soil by hydroponics or whatever, and recycle your air and everything. So there's some efficiency to that. That's a model that might be useful on the Earth if you could scale it up and multiply because we're obviously trashing the planet by the way we live on the planet. And you can't get away with that on space. It's simply not possible. But I'm not sure that alone is a good enough argument. It's true. It's a real argument because they do indeed have to develop these highly sustainable and self-contained ecologies and living situations to make colonies on the moon and Mars work. We're far from doing it, but they will have to do that.
1: But what about doing it on Earth? What about making a sustainable living on Earth? Do we actually... And this is an argument that people... People give all the time for why we need to go out to space. And I know that you, I believe you're going for a habitable conference next year. Is it 2022? And one of the things that I'm really curious about is what elements are going to be crucial for life on other planets and especially on Mars. And why did the whole fascination with Mars begin? And what has it given us over the years of research? Because I know there's another Mars rover going in a couple of days and all countries are sending something to Mars. What's the fascination with Mars and what have you found so far?
2: Sure. Well, I, I want to answer that, but let me answer your first question. I don't know if I can totally, but why don't we do it on Earth? And I think it's an unfortunate answer. It's because we're lazy. It's because we don't absolutely have to. Just like climate change. It's in front of everyone's face. Climate change and, is a hoax, Chris. Like, <laughs>
0: Chris, climate are, change People is a are hoax. living
2: climate change, and now they're dying with climate change. Yo. But until, you know, the human nature is such that until... It is truly an apocalyptic and proximate threat. You do everything you can to live your normal life and avoid it and deny it. And so we could live truly and fully sustainably. And there are little experiments, very few actually. But we're not gonna do it because we're lazy because the abundance of the earth is just keeping us fat and happy. And we haven't really been forced into a corner where it's do or die, right? It's not that stage yet. People do not react well psychologically to a slow rolling catastrophe. They only react to the proximity of death, someone holding a gun in their face Mm -hmm. and it could go off. When shit hits the fan. Yeah, so that's why we just don't do it. It's not dire enough. And of course, the catch-22 is by the time it's dire enough, that maybe it's too, too late. But it's too late. For Mars, that's a cultural answer, I think. Mars is not a very habitable place. It's more habitable than the moon. It has a little atmosphere. It's super cold. It's a 100 times further away by the flight you would have to make to get there than the moon, so it's a very difficult destination. It's very hard to retrieve people and protect them, keep them safe. The radiation exposure is huge. But the reason why it's got an allure goes back a long time. It's been in the popular culture and consciousness for over a century as Percival Lowell, who is a Boston merchant who made a lot of money and was interested in astronomy, used his retirement and his fortune to come out to the Western desert and build the first telescope in the Western United States in 1890. Or something, and he was motivated by the fact that Mars was going to make its closest approach to the Earth for 20 years, and he got to take the best pictures ever taken at the time—photographs, of course—of Mars. And he deluded himself into seeing canals on Mars, linear features, and he told himself a backstory of how it was a dying Martian race moving water from the poles to the equator to keep themselves alive. And he wrote popular books about it, and you know, the idea of Mars as a living world with Martians goes back over 100 years. There's a continuous thread in the American culture. In the 1920s, you have the guy who wrote the Tarzan books, Edgar Rice Burroughs. He's known best for Tarzan, but he wrote a whole series of books about life on Mars with, you know, warriors and fierce buxom princesses and crazy animals. And that was a precursor in the 20s and 30s to the classic science fiction of Ray Bradbury and you know the classic era of science fiction of the 50s and 60s, Martian Chronicles and so on. So you have this long history in the popular culture, going back a century, of Mars and the imagination as a living world. And so, of course, it's intoxicating. And the science then has also gone through changes. Uh, when the first Landers and orbiters went in the 60s and 70s. We decided it's an arid desert and it couldn't hold life on the surface. So that dashed all these hopes. But since the pendulum has swung back a bit, because now we think Mars was wet and probably very habitable a few billion years ago, oceans and life for sure are possible. And there's still water under the surface. We just haven't been able to do able- it. So Mars is still interesting as a place for microbes, anyway, for scientists. And it's just locked in as a place that evokes, you know, the god of war and it evokes all these ideas of life and other civilizations.
1: It just sounds so tedious. It sounds so (laughs) tedious in terms of the amount of energy we are putting in. But as you've said, like, I'm sure astronomers found out pretty early on, even scientists, that it's actually not a great place to live. You wrote the book, How It Begins. We have a lot of friends who debate this all the time and, you know, the Big Bang and how it's not possible that we could have a planet that was made like this. So I just wanted to know from you the beginning of the Earth and how the Earth came into being. How has the knowledge changed about it over years? How has the information about it changed? Do we know more or now is it like there's a lot of misinformation out there?
2: Well, you're learning more through the last few decades. You know, there's always was a general story about how planets formed and the Earth formed. But until we discovered other planets which we now know thousands of. We didn't really have a test of these theories or ideas. And now we we know of hundreds of Earth-like planets around other stars, and we project those numbers to billions in the galaxy. And those other discoveries of the last few decades have really taught us more about how planets form, and they've informed the story of the Earth's formation. Also, we have very good data because we've explored the Earth, we've dug under the crust, we've brought back moon rocks, and the moon was a product of the early Earth. The moon was the result of a collision with a Mars-type object, with the infant Earth when it was still almost molten. And we've nailed down that part of the story, too, with the moon rocks that were brought back. And so, yeah, the, the idea of the Earth is now pretty mature. But there's some very simple things we don't completely know. For instance, where did the water for the oceans of the Earth, where did it come from? There's still very vigorous scientific debate between whether that water was deposited afterwards by asteroids and meteors that had... Frozen water in them, and there was a lot of bombardment in the early days, and that would have been enough. But there's a countervailing theory that says that that water was always in the mantle of the Earth, and it was essentially pressurized and extruded up to the surface in the early Earth's history. You know, we've seen water contained in rocks in the Earth. And remember, we only can dig the tiniest little pinprick of a hole in the Earth's crust. We don't really know what the mantle is like directly. That's how we can still be unsure of things like that. So the story of the Earth's formation, it's, you know, I would say two-thirds to three-quarters sketched in, but not completely. But the date is very well known. The age of the Earth is measured to about 1%. It's 4.54 billion years plus or minus 0.01. That's very well
1: measured by radio. That's radiation. pretty accurate. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea that there might have been asteroid crashing into the planet that often, If that were true, shouldn't it be happening more often even now? And, you know, you talk about how people, governments are always, you know, they make you scared, especially news channels saying an asteroid is going to crash in the next year and anything could happen. Mm. And most of the time it won't. And even if it does, the magnitude of damage won't be that much. So wouldn't the same, I guess, the frequency of asteroids crashing in and supporting that theory, wouldn't that kind of defeat that?
2: Well, it's all part of the story and it it hangs together. The Earth and all the planets in the solar system were built from smaller pieces. You know, they started off as little dust bunnies, essentially, just essentially dust particles in a circulation. And they gradually grew by accretion to boulders and rocks and mountains and things that we call planetesimals, which are the size of small moons, and then eventually planets like the Earth and Mars and Venus and and all the giant planets out there in the outer solar system, they all have rocky cores that are sort of like large Earth-like planets. So all the planets formed with their cores built that way. And what happens is that didn't take very long. It took 20 or 30 million years, which really isn't long out of 4.5 billion year history, (laughs) And there was plenty of stuff left over. And so the first 100 million years saw a lot of impact from all the stuff that was left over. And so that's why the first... Period of time was crazy and included many, many impacts. And then eventually that material was either dissipated or flew out of the solar system or into the sun or already landed on planets and there wasn't much left. It was mopped up essentially by the formation process. So there's not much left now. And so now we get an occasional impact about once every 50 to 100 mm-hmm. million years. And we can document that. And our check of that story are the airless worlds like the moon and Mars because we can look at the cratering history. Their surfaces are massive of the entire history of impacts over their whole chronology of four and a half billion years. And you can look at their cratering record and see that it tells the same
1: story. It just buckles my mind when astronomers talk about 20 to 30 million years as a small period of time. That's when I go, okay, this is too overwhelming. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this information. Just give me my Uber Eats. I just want to be lazy and I just want to eat my (laughs) shitty food and sleep and lead my shitty life. I don't want to talk to Chris because he's overwhelming me because it's so hard to fathom and then we have things like black holes.
0: Oh, that.
1: Please give me the easiest definition of a black hole and.
0: And dark. What was it? You and dark matter. Dark matter.
1: They're very different let's start with black holes so black holes have been around really since
2: general relativity so they're a prediction of einstein's theory of gravity going back 100 years he didn't believe they were real he his theory actually predicts them and he thought it was a mathematical artifact which was very interesting he didn't trust his own theory essentially and so the idea was out there in the 20s and 30s that a massive star at the end of its life would collapse and there would be no force to prevent it collapsing more compact than the nuclear state of matter, like the atomic nucleus, to a thing that we would have to call a black hole because the escape velocity is Speed of light or greater. And at that point, nothing can escape no matter, no radiation, nothing. And it's a very incredibly small, dense object. So that was a prediction of his theory. And it just sort of sat there as a prediction that not even he believed for a while. And it wasn't until the 1960s that astronomers were able to get techniques good enough to show that, yes, they actually do exist. It was hard. It took decades to show. Now it's been shown abundantly. And now we know not only does the universe make black holes. When big stars die, the universe makes black holes at the center of of galaxies. And every galaxy has a black hole. Our galaxy has 4 million times the mass of the sun black hole. And the biggest galaxies have billions of times the mass of the sun 4
1: million times the mass of the sun. 4 million. It's not like yours and my weight. It's 4 million. Jesus Christ.
2: (laughs) But again, that's a small part of a galaxy. So that's right in the center of our galaxy. And our galaxy's mass is hundreds of billions of times the mass of the sun. So even though it's a big black hole, as a fraction of the galaxy, it's not really very much at all, it's a small fraction. So it's just something that happened in the center because the density was high and over time matter collapsed and the black hole ate and grew and grew and grew and now we can see it and measure it. And black holes have have matured as a scientific topic. Stephen Hawking obviously in the 70s and 80s developed the theory that Einstein came up with to talk about black hole properties in a more sophisticated way. We haven't been able to confirm some of his predictions. Some may never be confirmed. They're very difficult to test. But the observations have got really good, and gravitational waves that come, space time ripples that they produce, won a Nobel Prize a few years ago, and um, the black holes have won two of the last four Nobel Prizes. So scientists have got better at showing they actually exist.
1: And why are they important to the origin story of the Earth? They're not really important to the origin story of the Earth because our star is a normal
2: middle-aged, middleweight star that isn't going to die that way. So even in our future, there's no black hole in our future nearby. The nearest black hole to the Earth, to the sun and the Earth, is actually 200 light years away. It's quite far. So they're very rare because only the most massive stars die that way, and massive stars are rare compared to stars like the sun or small stars. So they're rare, and that's part of why it took a while to show they exist, because the nearest examples are pretty far away.
1: So why study them? Why study black holes? Was was it the first kind of evidence of gravity? Was that the reason for a lot of researchers Uh, and scientists to do that? It's the way
2: you test your theory of gravity. So black holes do not exist in Newton's theory of gravity. There's no meaning to a black hole. There's no way his theory would have predicted it. It was a prediction of general relativity. And so studying black holes becomes a way to test general relativity in a new way. General relativity was tested soon after it was published in the 1920s and so on. But the black hole is the ultimate test of general relativity because it's the ultimate gravity situation where gravity is so intense that space-time is essentially curved completely on itself and sealed off from the universe. A little pocket of space-time is sequestered and sealed off from the universe. So it's a wonderful place to test what we still think is a pretty good theory, general relativity.
0: So if I went into the black hole, what would happen to me?
2: Well, if it was a small black hole, you'd die before you actually got in because on the way in, the gravity stretching force is extreme so that if you fell in sideways or head to toe, it doesn't matter. You'd be ripped apart, your body would be ripped apart before you ever got to the event horizon. So the gravity stretching is so intense. However, the big black holes have more gravity more total gravity because they're more massive but their stretching force is actually less and Hypothetically, you could survive falling into one of the very big black holes, like the one in the middle of our galaxy. You just couldn't
1: get there because it's twenty-seven thousand light years away.
0: I'd probably tree. die of that old age.
1: Yeah, and in- insurance won't in. cover it. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> so you can try us. And uh, Chris, did you watch the movie Interstellar? Oh yeah. What did you think about it? Like, I, I think Christopher Nolan loves confusing people and <laughs> you know, kind of putting these ideas out there and people go crazy trying to figure it out. I love that last image. Have you seen Interstellar? Huda?
0: I have watched it. Yeah.
1: Do you? remember the last scene where Mm. the world's just like kind of a real curve at the end Mm. is that supported by actual research and evidence
2: so you know when scientists judge films science fiction (laughs) films we always you know we have a scale you know we argue about and talk about it like on a zero to ten scale how how well did they do the science and scientists are not you know uh, as you'd say, buzz or- <laughs> you say oh, buzzkill
0: you can do it again <laughs> <at> you. <laughs> you
2: know you, you give if it's a good filmmaker and a good script and a good film you give them a creative license of course it's a creative thing so you don't insist that it of be totally course. scientific it's not a documentary And that film was pretty high on the scale. Most scientists have it quite well done. And of course, the main scientific consultant on that film was Kip Thorne, who's a, a gravity theorist at Caltech who shared the Nobel Prize a few years ago that we just were talking about. So he had very, very good consultation and he took most of it. You know, he didn't follow every consultation they said some. occasionally I'm sure they said well that really couldn't happen he said well it looks cool so I'm going to do it anyway (laughs) but you know Kip Thorne's been interviewed and he appreciated what was done he said it was informative and in fact Kip Thorne and his group at Caltech actually to make the movie which was CGI of course They actually went and made new supercomputer simulations of massive black holes that informed the CGI. So it wasn't just a bunch of Ah. CGI people sitting in a room and dreaming stuff up like a cartoon. They actually did it based on the science. So that movie gets pretty high marks from most uh, astronomers and
1: physicists. So what does that mean when I remember Matthew McConaughey is trying to get to his daughter through this fourth dimension? What is that? Like, how do you explain that?
2: All right, so that is one of the examples where he goes into speculation. Okay. Um, and you're allowed to do that because we don't know what's inside the event exactly. horizon uh. of a black hole. We, we can't know, and if we went in to find out, we couldn't tell anyone what we found. <laughs> so, you know, that is a place where you not only can give him artistic license, but there's scientific license because we don't know the answer to the question.
1: And there is, as you said, like if it's a really massive black hole, that's where the idea of space-time starts becoming weirder and weirder, and you can kind of play around with it and the idea of so you can like kind of jump space time yeah. and you can be at two places at the same time like That's... that really boggles my mind and yeah there's there's
2: theoretical ideas about what could be going on inside a black hole where you could be in multiple places at the same time where you could travel along a timeline and meet previous and future versions of yourself Those are legitimate ideas in the mathematics. Mm. We simply don't know if they exist in the universe.
1: And actually, so I'm a big believer and you can, you know, trash me for this. I'm a big believer in manifestation and, you know, that our thoughts create our reality. And a lot of it is based on highly speculative scientific stuff that says that, you know, all realities exist. They all exist in the quantum universe and we choose what reality we want to be in. Can that actually be explained by science or have we gotten close to that?
2: Well, the idea of multiple realities and multiple parallel quantum states and multiple universes, those are all certainly legitimate ideas in physics and astronomy. The, the part where they connect to us and our brains and our intentionality and our existence as creatures in the universe, that's less clear, and there's no sturdy theory for that. But the basis of having multiple realities and multiple dimensions, dimensions beyond the four that we live in, and so on, yes, they're fair ideas. They're speculative, but science and the point of research is if you're doing research, as opposed to just reading a textbook where somebody knew this 100 years ago, there's a Nobel Prize winner called Murray Gellman, physicist, who said this. He said, research is what I do when I don't know what I'm doing. And that's actually, it's glib, but it's actually pretty profound. Mm -hmm. So research in science, any science, biology, physics, is working at the edge of knowledge. Because it's boring to work within the realm of what you know. Why would you do that? That's not much fun. And as soon as you get to that edge, you're uncertain. You're unsure. And that's okay. That's how it works. You can speculate beyond that edge and say, well, it might be like this. Can I test that? And that's why science is fun. Some people don't think science is fun because I don't think they appreciate that really basic point about how research works well also you have to distinguish between boring and hard are you spiritual no not particularly i hang out with buddhist monks and teach them every few years and i have met three popes and all and the dalai lama and all that but it, it none of it rubbed off
1: <laughs> oh, okay so that that was going to be my next question which was your book humble before the void where you went to north india so i'm from north india i live about 100 kilometers from Dharamshala. Where the Dalai mm-hmm. Lama has windows. I probably know
2: the place. Where is
1: it? Chandigarh. Oh, yeah. I've been yep. there. Yeah. Yep. And so you took that journey to, you know, teach Tibetan monks. Why do it? Why, why that particular group of people who are, who are quite satisfied with what they know? And, right. you know, the whole idea that we all want to be satisfied and they've kind of achieved it. Well, actually, they're not completely satisfied. I mean, it started because I got a call
2: from an educator in, in the Bay Area who fell into it himself. And he said, how would you like to go and teach the Dalai Lama's monks cosmology? It's not a question you ruminate over and just, or say, I'll take my calendar. You just say, yes, and then you go and you do it. So this sort of not obvious answer to your question is that the Dalai Lama, obviously, from his personal history and experience, is highly interested in science. He said in his autobiography, at age four, he was told that he was the 15th reincarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. And that was just his life determined at that point. But he he was asked, what would you have done if you hadn't been told that? He said, I would have been an engineer. And as the spiritual leader of his people, he stayed interested in science. And he looked at the monastic tradition, which is very rigorous that the monks and nuns have decades of training in philosophy and, and rhetoric and religion and so on. Multiple religions, of course, not just theirs. And there was no math and science in it. And he was worried that the Tibetan culture, displaced from its homeland anyway, would become a museum piece if it was static. And so he said, the world runs by science and technology. I don't want my monastics to be ignorant of it. And they don't get it in their training. It's very, it hasn't changed for centuries. And so he single-handedly changed that he also changed these rules so that nuns could be educated at the same level as as monks through the curriculum in the monasteries and nunneries so he's, he's very innovative in that and he brought initially brought out western educators like me to teach the monks in these workshops and they would do a series of workshops over years and and really get quite good at it and then they would go and build science centers in their monasteries and try and teach it to the other monks and nuns in their monasteries and spread it around. And the other part of the answer, of course, lies with Buddhism itself, which we know is better described as a philosophy than a religion. It's a very non-dogmatic, and it's very empirical. And so, the training and the mindset of these monastics is to be curious. And, you know, the Buddha, as a historical figure, supposedly told his followers, don't just take everything I say for granted or believe it. Test it as a metalsmith, wood, the knife, or the blade that they just made, tested against the truth, against reality, against what's in the world. So it totally fits to teach science to them.
1: And how did they explain the universe for so long?
2: Yeah, you know, there were these little toy cosmologies. And I mean, it's obviously a joint Hindu-Buddhist tradition, the Hindu part, going back further, of course. So there were cosmologies that were just sort of cartoonish, almost flat earth type cosmologies going back thousands of years. And the Dalai Lama has also commented on this, and, you know, he's aware that there are 12 or 15 different cosmological traditions in Hinduism and Buddhism. And he just says, well, I look at most of them and they're just silly. You know, they're just wrong. They don't match what the universe is doing. But there are some parts of their tradition going back a long way that are very supple and very concordant with modern cosmology so it's uncontroversial to them when you're teaching them that the universe contains innumerable worlds that the cycles of time in the universe are on time scales of billions and perhaps trillions of years a day in the life of brahma is a billion years and a lifetime of brahma is a trillion years and it's also uncontroversial that these worlds could have sentient life forms like humans or totally unlike humans. So that's a premise of astrobiology, of course, too. So most of the concepts of astrobiology and cosmology are pretty concordant with that tradition, which is the one they tend to learn now.
0: So this is all multiple universes and omniverses, is that right? Yeah. So what was it? I the mean difference? it's their
2: version of it. It's not of course a you know a formal scientific theory in their tradition, but it in a descriptive way it's saying very similar things.
0: Okay, so what is the difference for someone like me when you say multi universes but then there's omniverses are Yeah what
2: well I'm not sure I have an, an standard understanding of the word omniver. as a dictionary thing, I'm not sure what that would mean. But there's sort of two levels of distinction. So to cosmologists, there's what we would call the visible universe, and that's the universe you can see with your telescopes. And the visible universe, and we've done very well exploring that with big telescopes, Hubble Space Telescope, and so on. The visible universe is not bounded by space, but by time. So essentially, we've never seen the edge of space, an edge, you know, an edge to everything. All that happens is you look far back enough in time that you see towards the Big Bang. And so you run out of time, not space, because you're looking back towards the origin when everything was hot and dense. And you have to stay agnostic, if you like, about an edge to space because we haven't seen one. And again, in science, if if it's not required and you didn't see it, there's no reason to say that it it. exists. Like Mm. the edge of space exists somewhere. And so in the normal, standard, totally conventional cosmology the physical universe all that there is is much larger probably than the visible universe what we can see Mm. so that's one level of larger than what we see and it could be hugely larger like thousands of times bigger than the universe we see millions we don't know there's no bound on it from the theory the second level which is more avant-garde is more part of modern cosmology is when you trace the Big Bang back to a quantum event. Because if you project this chronology for 13.8 billion years back, you end up projecting, if not a singularity, then a time when, you know, space-time was curved and the density and temperature incredibly high. And logically, the universe was one smaller than an atom. I mean, the Dalai Lama wrote a book called The Universe in a Single Atom, so he Mm. knew this decades ago. So you have the universe in principle as a quantum event, with what we know about quantum physics and quantum theory it is entirely plausible that if our universe was a quantum event the substrate reality that led to that event could have spawned other quantum events mm-hmm. other universes
1: and so that's the yeah. natural way you get to a multiverse, multiverse. yeah oh that in a way makes sense because i know quantum theory in itself is so complicated and still so much work is being done with quantum theory. Have you heard about the Uma Amua, the the first interstellar object, which was that long cigar-shaped meteor? And, you know, a lot of people think that it might have been an alien ship or a probe. And there's been a lot of controversy about that. That's
2: progressed in the last few years. So it was a bizarre, you know, cigar-shaped object. Asteroids tend to be they're not spherical, but they're, they're lumpy, but they're not very strange-shaped. That was a very strange-shaped asteroid. And it had a very strange trajectory. It had a strange path and speed through space. And the combination of its weird shape and reflectivity and its weird trajectory led a number of people, most prominently Avi Loeb, a Harvard professor who wrote papers and then a book last year, got a lot of publicity on that, to argue that it was an alien artifact just traveling through our solar system. Wow! So that was out there. That's been out there for a couple of years. It's the case, as it is often the case, and UFOs are the perfect example, that the Killjoy astronomers have indeed found a fairly conventional explanation for it as just an asteroid it's an unusual asteroid for sure but it's still but it's an not a, you know a bizarre has to be an alien artifact type object and so there's a lot of stuff out there and we're discovering it all the time
0: a bit ago when we were talking about asteroids on the earth yeah. mm-hmm. would that be what we see as shooting stars by any chance <laughs>
2: So luckily, you don't see asteroids, (laughs) because if one of them hit the Earth, that's all she wrote, right? We'd be okay for (laughs) us. Um, Shooting stars are interesting because they are actually sand grain sized particles in the upper atmosphere just burning up. So they're tiny, but they're moving at about 20 or 30,000 miles an hour. And that's an enormous amount of energy. And Mm. so when they burn up, even up at 50 or 70,000 feet in the upper atmosphere... They make a flash of light that you can see. That's what shooting stars are. So there's, you know, while the big stuff doesn't hit the earth very often, there's much more small stuff than big stuff. And the small stuff hits the earth or comes to the atmosphere a lot more. And we should, you should always look up every night before you go to bed, say your prayers, the fact that you have an atmosphere, because it's protecting you from all that stuff. If there are things much bigger than the size of a grain of sand, like a pebble-sized rock, that's anywhere near the space station, and they see it. They have to huddle in the central hub of the space station because it would destroy the thing. Wow! So all that small stuff moving that fast is pretty dangerous.
1: Yeah, it's it's right. if it hits you, you're done. It's-
0: and also yeah, it would hurt because it's going so fast. It's so- gonna
1: kill you. It's not gonna hurt. It's gonna kill you. It could. No, it's be- gonna kill you. Yes, yeah, it's yeah, gonna okay. kill you.
0: So, like, would you recommend that we make wishes on those?
1: Oh my god!
0: I, I it's
2: it's harmless i'm not gonna recommend <laughs> against it i just gonna, i'm just gonna say you shouldn't have any confidence in wish coming true okay
1: yeah and now suddenly it's not god it's a shooting star like let's pray to that oh my god there's a shooting star and all my wishes are gonna come true i i did have a question about i want to put this to rest for once and for all is the moon landing i was and- gonna
0: go there next
1: What was the origin story of the moon landing not being true? And, you know, that whole explanation of why is the flag in the pictures? Why does the flag seems to be moving even though there's no wind on the moon?
2: Yeah, I mean, these are these are such classic urban legends that university professors teach classes about them. That's how classic they are. I'll just say that the fact that we know we went to the moon is because there's all this stuff that was left behind we've been measuring using the reflectors and magnetometers on the moon for half a century to bounce radar and light off the moon and that's how we knew in case you didn't know this a useful little fact the moon gets this much further from the earth every year and we know that Mm -hmm. because of what they follow behind they're starting to die now because they're in their 80s but there are 12 people who stood on the moon and you know i will deny the personal experience of an alien abductee but not of a moonwalker so there are those people too Gallup polls put that percentage of the American public at 7 or 8%. One in 12 people don't think we went to the moon. That's
1: that, right? a lot. That's a lot of people. It is, is a lot. It, it is, a is a lot. And I tell when lot. I'm teaching,
2: I tell my kids in my class, who I statistically hope it's not one in 12 of them. I say, you go to a supermarket and there's, you know, standing in a the line, there's probably one Apollo denier in the line behind you. And you should find out who they are and tell them why they're, Killed what's them. wrong with them. I oscillate between two positions on this. You know, as an educator and as an educated citizen, it is super annoying to me that one in 12 people would be so willfully denying what, whether you think it was a geopolitical pissing contest and not how we should have spent the money or not. It was the sublime technological achievement of the last century. Remember, they went to the moon at a time when computers were the size of, you know, a living room. And, you know, the technology was incredibly simple and it was an amazing thing to do. So why deny that technological achievement, whether it was well or poorly motivated? So. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, if you made a list of the batshit crazy things that one in 12 Americans believe, including the grassy knoll and Elvis was seen in a Walmart last week, it's
1: just in the mix with all that stuff. So why get so agitated? It's because you're part of the Illuminati, Chris. <laughs> when are you going to just admit it? Yeah. Just make okay, a symbol well, with I'm not your hands. i it on air. So no, <laughs> just, just, just do a hand gesture towards us. We can't see. Just be like, you're part of... Imagine the hand gesture. Yeah.
0: Do you want aliens to exist? I would
2: like, I mean, I think statistically they do because of the number of habitable worlds in the galaxy and beyond. So I'm not confident because we don't have evidence, but it's not that I want them to exist. I just think that they do. And I think it's going to take us a while to figure that out and
1: demonstrate. I wonder what they'll
0: be like.
1: I think it'll be so underwhelming. By that time, it'll be a really (laughs) underwhelming experience and people will just forget about it the next day. They'll go, oh, we knew this was going to happen.
2: Well, I think the most likely, you know, we're so anthropocentric, we project through science fiction and films and TV shows that they're going to look similar to us and, you know, sort of humanoid with just bad skin conditions or something. Truth is, they might be so alien as to be unrecognizable or incomprehensible. I think that's actually more likely.
0: Mm. Okay, so no acne then.
1: No, and they're not going to look like ET because no. I like,
0: really wish they did, though.
1: <laughs> I don't. I, I actually don't wish they do because it'll That's be cute. it'll be cool for humans to look like idiots at the end of the day. <laughs> Which is, since you mentioned
2: ET, I'll throw one more thing in the mix about UFOs, aliens, etc., and life in the universe. ET is the perfect example. The film, Spielberg's other movies, Close Encounters as well, and, and a lot of science fiction over the years of the fact that aliens are a metaphor for religion, they're a religious metaphor, Mm. and they're they're used as a stand-in for deities. So E.T. was the Christ story, just very literally, episode by episode, if you just go through the thing, it's just that.
0: Wow, Um, I've never done that. More broadly, well, so if
2: you parse your favorite movies and TV shows and science fiction, you'll see that it bifurcates into the the benign aliens, the E.T.'s, who can heal with their fingers and so on, and the, the malign ones that are going to destroy us. And that's essentially the religious metaphors of salvation and damnation. And, and that's how we, ju- we just angel. mapped our religious landscape, our yearning for other and a supreme being into the alien world. And there we see it in a popular culture everywhere.
0: Wow. What a, what a note to end on. It's like a cliffhanger.
1: Brilliant. Great storyteller, Chris MP. I still wanted to talk about... How It Ends, which came out before How It Begins, which is very interesting as well.
0: I love that you did both because you were like, oh, I've got to end it now.
1: I did it ass backwards, but it's okay. It, back, so it was fine. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on, Chris. It was refreshing for us to get yeah, someone. Who... I've learned a lot. But I will ask her to explain it, and she wouldn't be. able I to.
0: won't be able to. I'll be honest, I can't. <laughs>
1: it was a good freewheeling
2: conversation, a kind I enjoy. And if nobody likes it, if we can all be podcast deniers and just pretend it didn't exist. It was all made up. <laughs> so, and I, I'll just say, I was never there. <laughs>
1: Pleasure to have you. Thank you for taking out the time. Oh, that was fun. Enjoyed hanging out with you for a while.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Take care. Bye bye.
0: Yeah, See ya.